Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Father, we're just so thankful that we have this opportunity to study your Word tonight and to be reminded that there is an absolute truth, a certainty, a surety that we can always rely on. We live in a world today, Father, that is becoming more and more relativistic in all of their thinking, and this relativism influences us in many extremely subtle ways, and especially those that are in school, those who are in university and even younger. And Father, we just pray, especially this time of year, as uh, kids are starting back to school, college students, grad students are starting back, that those from this church would just uh, be well prepared to face intellectually the challenge that they that they will meet in the classroom and be able to stand firm for the truth of your word because they are they are prepared. And Father, we pray too for the parents of the, these kids that they would be faithful in the stewardship of their responsibilities as parents to train and their children to spend the time to, with them, talking to them about the, all of the various uh, details of their studies, uh, interacting with them, making sure that their children are adequately prepared spiritually, doctrinally, for the challenges that, that face them. Now, Father, we pray for us as we study your word tonight that we may be able to focus on the key doctrines that we've discovered in First uh, Kings and that you might encourage us, strengthen us as we re- review these things tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We've been studying First Kings for 35 Lessons. This is actually 35, so for 34 lessons, tonight's our 35th hour. And we have gone through the first 11 chapters, and I think it's time to spend at least one session in review just to go back and try to fix in our minds the things that we have studied over the last uh, seven or eight months. We actually began this last November, I believe, but it seems that uh, with one thing and another, Christmas conferences, vacations, missions, trips, plumbing problems, illness, whatever it might be. It seems like the, uh, Tuesday night's taken a number of hits, and so it's uh, we haven't always been as con- as contiguous, let's say, uh, as we as we hope. But it's important to take time to review these things and fix stuff in our heads not just to think through the biblical flow of information, because that forms the very foundation of our, of our doctrine, is what happens biblically, who does what, when, where, how. And God gives us that raw data, as it were, which forms the foundation, the, the foundational uh, data from which we develop Doctrines, And those doctrines are related to the principles, the protocols of living the Christian life, how to think, how to live, how to relate to people, uh, how to relate to God. And so even though we go through these, these books in the Old Testament that uh, are historical in nature, they are a unique history for they are God's editorialized history designed to teach us and to illustrate key doctrinal principles. One thing I like to do as we go through these lengthier Old Testament books is to have what I call A-level lessons. That's how they're identified out on the website. 
as as summaries or overviews. Sometimes they cover the whole book. Sometimes they just cover a section of the book. One of the reasons that I decided to do this several years ago was because, so often, for one reason, so often when we're studying any particular book, we can get so mired down into in the details of the book or the doctrines that we lose sight of uh, the overview. The, the, we lose the uh, sight of the forest for looking at all of the cells on the leaves on the trees. We don't just lose the forest for the trees. We're looking much more detailed than that. So we have to come up sometimes and look at the flow of, uh, and the structure of God's revelation. Second reason I did this was because there's a lot of situations where people uh, don't necessarily want to go through er the details of every single lesson, but they want to catch the overview of the book, different passages in the book, because they're teaching it. This may apply to a pastor. It may apply to a prep school teacher. It may apply to somebody who's just wanting to get an overview of the Old Testament or these books and getting down into a lot of detail sometimes is a little overwhelming. So I try to have these what I call A-level summary sections where we synthesize all the data and summarize it so that we get that, that bird's eye view, sort of a flyover perspective of God's revelation. And another reason I like to do this is because it helps us in our own thinking just to think about the raw data of the Bible, uh, who these people are, the flow of events, and how God is working these things out to bring about his glory, to bring about his plan of salvation, if we're talking about the Old Testament, New Testament, dealing with what he's doing in the church. So these sorts, these kinds of overviews are very important just to help us uh, orient, think through the information. At a, at a foundational level, we're talking about just the flow of history, the people, the events, the problems they face. And whenever you talk about problems that people face, you always talk about, have to talk about solutions. And so that's always an important thing to bring out is because the Bible is a great storybook. And by story, I mean it tells the stories, the narratives of people's lives. And what makes a great story a great story is conflict. And conflict always means problems. And problems always entail solutions. And somebody's always the hero in any narrative or any history. God is always the hero in the Old Testament. And I, part of the reason I try to emphasize these things is for prep school teachers to bring these things out when they tell the stories and they're teaching these things to uh, kids as well as parents when you're reading Bible stories to kids to think about it in these particular terms and to think about the fact that that whenever you're talking about any biblical story, there is a a human, main human protagonist that is, we might think of as the hero. Ultimately, it's God who's the hero. And then there's some problem. He's either wrestling with struggling with uh, human opponents or with the opponents of his own sin nature or with uh, other uh, enemies of Israel, something like that. And he has to resolve these circumstances, situations, people problems through the use of doctrine. And so what are the doctrines that are embedded in these stories? What do they exemplify? What do they illustrate? And that's what we move to when we're 
uh, teaching uh, these different sections. And as you think through 1 Kings 11, I mean 1 Kings 1 to 11, as you think about the things that we've covered from the very beginning when we started 1 Kings 1, we see David as an old man. He's in his dotage. He is uh, disconnected from the events around him. He is physically uh, weakened, and he is uh, about to be uh, the victim of a conspiracy by uh, one of his sons to usurp the throne instead of uh, following uh, David's w- expressed wishes to have the uh, kingship passed on to his son Solomon. And we see what happens with David there, how God works behind the scenes to uh, solve that problem. And at the very core, what's the doctrine that's happening there? It's the faith rest drill. It is a reliance upon a promise that God had made specifically to David that we refer to as the Davidic covenant. And actually that forms the foundation for almost every chapter, every event, every situation all the way through these 11 chapters. So if you're going to think about 1 Kings 1 through 11, you're going to think about the main doctrine that's here. It would be the faithfulness of God and the faith rest drill. The faithfulness of God and the faith rest drill. God is faithful to his word. He's faithful to his promises. He's faithful to do what he said he would do in the Old Testament. And that really, that becomes a, is a major theme all the way through uh, the the books of Kings, First and Second Kings. So let's just go to our chart here. We need to uh, uh, redo this chart up on the internet because I've revised it just a little bit. Not so much this first chart, but the second one. Revised it just a little bit to fit the scenario of what we studied, what I've worked through in the last several months. We look at our whole study of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. There's three basic divisions. 1 Kings 1 to 11 is the end of the United Kingdom, the third king. Saul was the first, David the second, Solomon the third. Uh, There is a split in the kingdom because of divine discipline on the nation because they followed Solomon into idolatry. And you have the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom. These are the focus uh, of 1 Kings 12 to 17. But the northern kingdom goes out under divine discipline first in 722 B.C., and so the last part of 2 Kings, you have the southern kingdom remaining alone, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and 2 Kings 18 to 25. That first section covers approximately 40 years, the second section 209 years, and the last section 135 years. So we have these rough dates up here. The first part's David and Solomon. Then we have the second part, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, with Rehoboam to Ahaz. And then the final section from the kings, Hezekiah through Zedekiah. That's the structure. You can think it through very simply, united, divided, single kingdom. You've got the structure of first and second kings. United, divided, single. That's it. Starts with David, ends with Zedekiah. Tremendous material in between. But we're just in that first section. We finish the first division, the United Kingdom, 1 Kings 1 through 11. 
And so the next chart emphasizes that aspect. What happens in chapters 1 through 11 in 1 Kings covers a 40-year period. We have three basic divisions contextually. The first two chapters cover the establishment of Solomon's throne. The establishment of Solomon's throne is the kingship passes from David, God's chosen king, the one to whom God gave an unconditional covenant, passes from David to Solomon. In that section, we talk about the accession of Solomon to the throne, uh, the various uh, executions that take place following his accession to the throne and the death of David, his marriage to... um, the daughter of Pharaoh, and his request for wisdom. Actually, that doesn't come in until chapter 3. I need to change that. Uh, in the third chapter, I revised where I had the breaks, and so I didn't catch that. Uh, 3.1 to 10.29, we have the rise of Solomon. His first love is God, but there's a hint of foreboding at the beginning of the third chapter. And it isn't developed, and we don't see it's coming to fruition until we get to chapter 11. The first love is God. He loves the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is obedient to God. And when God comes to him and says, Solomon, I will give you whatever you ask, Solomon demonstrates tremendous humility. And rather than asking for power or riches or the defeat of his enemies, he asks for wisdom. Because he is grace-oriented, because he's humble, because he loves the Lord, God is going to favor him and bless him with everything he didn't ask for along with wisdom. He is the most blessed of all the kings of Israel, and the kingdom is going to be uh, prospered magnificently under Solomon's leadership. And so this section is going to talk about his administration of the kingdom, uh, his building projects, the building of the temple, the building of his own palace, and the dedication of the temple. In this section, we have two appearances by God to Solomon in a dream, one in chapter 3, the other in chapter 9. These function as bookends to this crucial section, and it is in there that God gives such great wisdom, and then he blesses Solomon in chapter Uh, Nine with a conditional covenant, not unconditional like Solomon's, but with a conditional covenant. And because Solomon fails to live up to those conditions by being obedient as his father David, he uh, is going to be uh, come under divine discipline. The eleventh chapter describes that divine discipline and the decline of Solomon because of his second love, his love for his wives. Chapter three starts off with his love for God. Chapter 11 starts off with his love for his wives and his polygamy, which actually was politically motivated and leads to idolatry, multiculturalism, internationalism. And as a result of that, God indicts him for those sins and outlines the punishment because of God's grace and love for David, stated twice, on account of your father David, God does not Uh, bring about the extremities of the discipline in Solomon's time, but he postpones it until his after his death, and as a result of his uh, polygamy, and it's not just his, but he has led the nation into idolatry, 
as the uh, king of Israel, this is a sign of disloyalty. It breaks the first commandment, thou shalt not have no other gods before me, and which is the foundation of Israel's whole covenant relationship with God. And so God is going to split the kingdom as part of divine discipline, the outworking of the Mosaic Covenant. So when we think through this section, we've got the first two chapters, the establishment of Solomon's throne, chapters 3 through 10, the rise and the glory of Solomon's kingdom, how God blesses him, and then chapter 11, the uh, the disloyalty of Solomon, his decline, and God's discipline on Solomon for his idolatry. That summarizes it. Now, let's go through this sort of uh, chapter by chapter and think our way through what happens in this book. First of all, we come to the beginning of the book, and we see it begins when now King David was old. This follows historically after the end of Second Samuel. But by now, David is old. He is bordering on senility. He is physically weak, and he is disengaged. This is what we see uh, at, this, at the beginning of First Kings. Now, what happens in the first chapter is that God secures Solomon on the throne of David in fulfillment of his promise to David in the Davidic covenant. That's the idea in, in the first chapter. If you notice, when I state most of these chapter summaries, I state them with God as the subject. God's the hero, remember? He's the one who's really working behind the scenes, even though we don't have God uh, acting specifically or overtly in the first chapter. It is God who is at work behind the scenes making sure that David is alerted to the uh, Adonijah conspiracy and that he is going to, and, and then David takes the necessary action. So in this first chapter, God secures Solomon on the throne of David in fulfillment of his promise to David in the Davidic covenant. It's not just a story about uh, inheritance. It's not just a story about transitions. It's not just a story about uh, some might even want to read or revenge into some of this. It is the story about how God is fulfilling his promise to David. God secures Solomon on the throne. And this we know from uh, not from a passage in 1 Kings, but from a passage in 1 Chronicles 22. Now, later we'll look at the little bit broader section of 1 Chronicles 22. But in this particular verse, David is speaking about speaking to Solomon. And in the broader context here, which involves a few more verses we'll look at in a, in a little bit, uh, David is telling Solomon, reminding Solomon of the covenant God made with, with David. And that God prohibited David from building a house for God, from building a temple. But God, according to this passage, told David that he would allow his son to build that temple, and that would be Solomon. God specifically spelled that out. So in quoting God in 1 Chronicles 22.9, David says, Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side, for his name shall be Shlomo, Solomon, peace from shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace or rest. 
And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his day. He shall build a house for my name. And he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. This is the promise that God made to David, that that the inheritance would go to Solomon, not just to one of his sons, but specifically to Solomon. And God tells this to Solomon. So this is known a long time before uh, David's death, because in First Chronicles 22, David is pictured as actively gathering all the building materials that are going to be needed by Solomon to build the temple. So David is pictured as actively involved, so it's long before he grows old as per chapter 1, but there is uh, a threat within his own household that develops by the time we get to First uh, Kings uh, chapter 1. Now, in this chapter, we see David is in his dotage. He is disengaged. He's weak. He's unaware of the conspiracy surrounding him. His son, Adonijah, is attempting a coup. He's going to conspire with uh, Joab, David's uh, general, the commander-in-chief of the armies of Israel, and uh, Abiathar, the high priest, And so Adonijah convinces them that he would make a better king than Solomon, and so they they involve themselves in this uh, coup that Adonijah is planning. But God works behind the scenes, and we see how the information leaks out. And uh, Nathan finds out about it. Nathan is the prophet. Nathan finds out about it, and Zadok, Zadok, actually Zadok, the priest, the, high, the priest finds out about it, and with uh, between Zadok, Benaiah, Nathan the prophet, and others, they work out a plan to foil the plot. And the, the drama here is incredible as Adonijah is preparing this incredible ceremony with all of this pomp and circumstance. Of course, this week we have one of the uh, political parties uh, meeting up in Denver, and we see the kind of pomp and circumstance that attend any kind of state function. And this was the same kind of thing. Adonijah isn't going to go off and have himself uh, crowned king in private. He wants to have uh, Abiathar there and Joab so that all the people can see this. There's the bands playing. They'll be singing. He set this whole thing up, and as the people are beginning to gather and they are going to uh, anoint him down near the uh, further down the valley near the pool of Shalom. Uh, we see the word gets back to David, and so Nathan and Bathsheba uh, make a plan to alert David. And Nathan has Bathsheba go in first to alert David to the threat. And as Bathsheba lays out the threat to David, then Nathan comes in. Nathan confirms what Bathsheba has told him. And we see a glimmer of the fire that had invigorated David as a leader at this point because he immediately takes charge and generates a plan to have Solomon anointed before Adonijah can be anointed. And so he has uh, puts puts a, a, a an anointing plan together, and they have their uh, trumpets and they have everything they need along with the priest Zadok, 
and the prophet Nathan, they go down to the springs of Gihon, and there uh, Solomon is anointed king. And when word of this get to Adonijah and those who are supporting him, they, the, the other, the co-conspirators, flee in terror. All the people there flee in fear, and Adonijah himself flees to uh, the, the uh, altar that is up on the Temple Mount. Of course, the temple hasn't been built yet, but David has an alternate worship site there, and he flees there to grab hold of the horns of the altar in order to seek sanctuary and protection from Solomon's vengeance. What we see in this chapter are two basic doctrines I've alluded to already. Number one, the faithfulness of God to his covenants and to his promises. He is faithful, even though uh, we don't have the overt expression or description of God here. God is the one who is making sure the information gets to David and that the attempt to usurp the throne from Solomon is... is um, shut down. And David operates on the faith rest drill. That's what gives David the strength and the courage to do the right thing is because he knows that God promised to give it to Solomon. And so David acts firmly. He acts with direction. He shows a fantastic leadership at this particular point because he can trust in God's promise. And that's what happens when we're operating on the faith rest drill. The foundation of all problem-solving devices, once we get past, especially in the Old Testament when they didn't have the filling of the Spirit, when we're walking with the Lord, we trust Him, trust His Word. It's not just a faith in faith. It's not this blind sort of faith. It's faith in God's promises. And when we grab hold of the promises of God, then it changes our mental attitude. You're not grabbing hold of God's promises if it's not changing your mental attitude. If you're just reading through those promises and you're still in a state of worry, a state of anxiety, then you're not grabbing hold of them. Uh, when you grab hold of the promises of God and have that confidence in him, then it is going to change the whole dynamic of your mental attitude. And that's what we see going on with David. Now we come to chapter 2. Chapter 2 deals with the establishment, the securing of Solomon's uh, throne at the time of David's death. So in chapter 2, we summarize it by saying that God secures Solomon on the throne through the wise decisions of David and Solomon in dealing with their enemies. God secures Solomon on the throne through the wise decisions of David and Solomon in dealing with their enemies. And where did they get this wisdom? They got this wisdom from the Word of God that they knew. As, as we take in the Word of God and as the Holy Spirit uh, makes it uh, usable in our souls, what the New Testament, what Paul refers to as epinosis, then when we use it and we develop skill in practicing it, that, that skill that comes from practicing and applying it is what the Old Testament refers to as wisdom, Chokmah, that skill at living. And so as you practice the word of God, that wisdom develops. And that's what we see here. They make wise decisions. So these two chapters, chapters 1 and 2, emphasize a repeated statement. Go back, trace these, kind of jot these verses down and go back and, and highlight them. 
that uh, you have a repeated statement, a theme, a thread that runs through these two chapters that God will bless Solomon and establish the throne of David forever. And we see this in chapter 1, verse 30, uh, also in 36 and 37, repeated again in chapter 1, verse 48, again in 2.4 and 2.15 and in 2.45. Once again in 130, 136 and 37, 148, 24, 215, and 245. We see this emphasis. God is going to do this. They are relying on a promise from God. So that gives them uh, tremendous fortitude and strength in the midst of a very difficult situation. Put yourself in this spot where you are being conspired against. There are enemies that have been friends. There is betrayal that has taken place and it has to be dealt with through wisdom. And that doesn't mean being mamby-pamby. And so you're going to have too many uh, very weak modern Christians who have been uh, sold a very false view of the Christian life and what it means to glorify God who just can't understand what happens in this chapter. But the chapter sets it up that this is wisdom. And as the days of David drew near that he should die, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, uh, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong and prove yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. Language that comes right out of the Mosaic law, that you may prosper in all that you do and whatever you turn, that the Lord may fulfill his word. See, it's loaded with doctrine. And in verse 5, he says, Moreover, you know also what Joab the son of Zariah did to me and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel. See, David doesn't shift from operating on divine viewpoint to operating on his sin nature and vengeance between verse 3 and verse 4. Verse, uh, excuse me, verse 4 and verse 5. Verse 5 flows out of his knowledge of doctrine. He understands that when you are faced with conspiracy, when you are faced with people who have betrayed you, then sometimes very harsh and unpleasant actions need to take place. And when you are the king in the kind of government Israel had, this is the right thing to do because the king has the judicial power uh, to execute these judgments. And so David never could do it. He never had the strength to take on Joab himself, but he knows that Solomon can, and so he gives him instructions. And so in uh, the, the rest of the chapter, following the death of David, Solomon has to deal with these uh, leftover problems from his father's administration in dealing with not only David's enemies, but also his own enemies because he knows from divine viewpoint that they represent the enemies of God who would seek to destroy the lineage that God has promised through David for the line of the Messiah. This isn't just a political problem. It is a plan of God slash spiritual problem. God has promised that the descendant, the, descendant, the seed would go uh, from David and uh, to Solomon is the designated heir. And so if there is a successful coup against Solomon, then this uh, violates the promise that God has revealed already. And so it's up to them to uh, 
uh, do something about it because that's their position. They're in the authority to do so as uh, the king over the theocratic kingdom. So the enemies of God would seek to destroy this line. Uh, God had promised this to David and to his son. Now, we learn later on that it's a conditional promise to Solomon because of his disobedience. He's going to miss that path of blessing, but for now they don't know that. So he has to deal with the problems raised by Adonijah, Abiathar, Joab, and Shemai. Each of these had played into the hands of the enemies of God, which, of course, is Satan, and so Solomon must deal with them on the basis of the law. All this is done on the basis of the Mosaic law. First of all, God deals with, I mean, Solomon deals with them in grace. Solomon deals with them in grace, but they each show that they aren't to be trusted. They continue to reveal their inner character flaws and their betrayal of Solomon. And it is for this reason that they are executed. Initially, David counsels with Solomon about what he must do to secure his throne. The priority is in verses 3 and 4, to keep the charge of the Lord, to love the Lord his God, and to be loyal to him. Immediately following that, David gives him an honest and realistic appraisal of his enemies. Uh, First, there's Joab, who has his own agenda and has always been out of control, is actually guilty of numerous capital crimes and should be executed according to the law. Second, there's Barzillai the Gileadite who had protected David when David had fled during the Absalom uh, rebellion. And so he is to deal with Barzillai in chesed, in loyal love. He is to be faithful and kind to Barzillai. And then third, uh, Shimei must be punished, but in a wise way, David says, in a wise way that exposes his treason. After David dies, Adonijah is going to make an underhanded claim for the throne. He's going to send Bathsheba in to make a request that Abishag, the nurse that had been brought in to keep David warm, that Abishag should be given to Adonijah as a wife. And in that culture, any woman who was in the harem of the king who became the wife of another, that was a sign that that other man was trying to usurp the authority and the power of the kingship. And so this is clearly a statement on Adonijah's part that he's still trying to make a claim for the kingship. So Adonijah is going to be executed for treason. Uh, Abiathar is treated in grace. He's the priest, high priest. He's banished for his treason, but he's not executed, so he's dealt with in grace. Joab, though, is executed for, as it's stated in 2.32, It is the Lord who returns his blood on his head. It's God who is dealing with him in justice, even though he does it through Samuel, I mean through Solomon. And then Shimei violates the rules of his parole. Solomon had told him you must you'll live, but you have to stay in in Jerusalem. If you leave for any reason whatsoever, you'll be executed. And he violated that parole and is executed. So it's all done according to the law. Again, the major doctrines we see in chapter 2, grace and judgment. Grace and judgment work together. God is always gracious even in the midst of judgment. Grace often precedes judgment. We see that in Solomon's behavior. He's wise. He's gracious to his enemies. But when they make it clear that they are still his enemies, then he has to deal with them and justice. 
And the second thing we see is that God is faithful to his promises. What underlies this, the citation in verse 3, is a summation that comes right out of the Mosaic law. God is faithful to his promises in the Mosaic law as we have seen. Now in chapter 3 and chapter 4, I'm going to go back to this slide so you have that general structure up there. The first two chapters deal with the establishment and the securing of Solomon on his throne. Uh, Chapters 3 through 10 deal with the rise of Solomon, the way in which God blesses Solomon. But it starts with an ominous note. Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter and brought her uh, to the city of David. And then... Um, we have a second important statement in verse 3, and Solomon loved the Lord. Now, Deuteronomy says that the way you show that you love the Lord is by singing praise psalms to God, right? Just see if anybody's awake. How do you show you love the Lord? By obeying him. Again and again in Deuteronomy, it says if you love the Lord, you will keep his statutes, keep his ordinances, keep his commandments. It's objective. How do you know you love the Lord? By what you do in relationship to his, to his word. And so Solomon loved the Lord. Notice how it's defined in context, walking in the statutes of his father David, except. See, there's that exception, the ominous foreshadowing here. Except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now that weakness of his sin nature, is going to get exploited by Satan eventually. He will give into it in terms of his own volition. Uh, he will give into pride and arrogance, thinking that he achieved all this on his own, and the final years of his reign are going to be marked by uh, rebellion against God. He is going to uh, promote idolatry, which is viewed as high treason in the Mosaic law. So, Chapter 3 and chapter 4 work together. Chapter 3 describes God's gift to Solomon. Chapter 4 gives evidence of his reality. Chapter 3 highlights what Solomon, uh, what made Solomon great. Not his own talents, not his own ability, but his humility, his grace orientation, his love for the Lord, the knowledge and application of the Word of God. But, uh, there are overtones of the problem. Now, in chapter 3, we see that God God deals with Solomon in grace and personally appears to him in a dream, offering him, offering to give him whatever he desires. This is chapter 3. This is the foundation. And Solomon requests wisdom. He shows tremendous humility here. Rather than requesting uh, that God uh, destroy his enemies or give him power or give him wealth. Uh, he requests wisdom. In response, God blesses Solomon by not only giving him wisdom, but saying, because you asked for wisdom and you didn't ask for these other things, I'm going to give you those other things in a, in a way and in abundance more than anybody else. And so the remainder of Solomon's story really emphasizes and illustrates the greatness of God's blessing upon Solomon all the way up to or through chapter 10. So chapters 3 through 10 illustrate God's blessing on uh, Solomon. 
The last half of chapter 3, starting in verse 16, gives the illustration of Solomon's wisdom in solving the problem between the two uh, harlots, the two prostitutes who both laid claim to one child. And how he dealt with that uh, shows his wisdom. Chapter 4 is another illustration of his wisdom, for in chapter 4, we see that uh, Solomon's wisdom displayed in his organization and administration of the kingdom. He organizes things well. He makes things efficient. He designs things well. And so the uh, empire is going to run smoothly and want run well. The major doctrines that we see in chapters 3 and 4 have to do with humility and grace orientation. Humility and grace orientation, they go together. When we're oriented to God's grace, we know that nothing is from who and what we are. It is all based on who God is and what Jesus Christ has done for us. And everything that we have comes from God. It doesn't come because of our talent. It doesn't come because of how uh, how blessed we were with uh, being born with the parents we had or the financial situation we had or didn't have. Everything that we have comes from God, and God blesses us with those things. Chapter 4 describes uh, all of this blessing that God gave to Solomon and begins to hint at his worldwide fame. Verse 30, Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men. And this knowledge spreads throughout the world. Uh, It closes with an emphasis on Solomon's Uh, love and devotion to God. He writes over 3,000 Proverbs and over 1,000 Psalms, extolling the greatness of God's character. He is a man who is oriented to God. He's oriented to grace, and he's oriented to doctrine. Chapters 5 through 9 focus on the building of the temple, the building of the temple. His preparations in chapter 5 are developed, his organization is evident he goes to Hiram, the king of Tyre. The uh, people of Tyre are known as architects. They're builders. They have natural resources that aren't available to to Solomon in Israel. And so he works out a trade agreement with Hiram. And Hiram is not just uh, anyone. Hiram is a man who is a believer, very likely because of his response In verse 7, so it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over a great people. So there's this uh, biblical orientation or correct orientation, divine orientation on the part of Hiram. So David enters into a contract with uh, a trade agreement with Hiram to bring all of the material into Israel that's necessary uh, to build the temple. And we're reminded in verse 12, So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him. There was peace between Hiram and Solomon. The two of them made a treaty uh, together. Now, all of this, chapters uh, 5 through 9, are at the center of God's promise to Solomon. And that forms the heart of this section from 1 to 11. Let's go back to that passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 22. Now we're going to pick up the broader context beginning in verse 6. 
talking about David, the text says, Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you. And we read that verse already. So God doesn't allow David to do it, but he promises that his son Solomon will do it. That's the core promise that underlies these uh, 11 chapters and the trust that David has and Solomon has in that promise that God is going to fulfill it uh, through them. In verse 10 we read, He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son. I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Verse 11, Now, my son, David says, The Lord will be with you that you may be successful and build the house of the Lord your God, just as he has spoken uh, concerning you. Only the Lord... Only the Lord give you discretion and understanding and give you charge over Israel so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the ordinances which the Lord commanded Moses concerning Israel. Be strong, courageous, do not fear nor be dismayed. Point is, God promises that Solomon will build the temple. And so Solomon is executing on the basis of that promise. And so chapter 6 and chapter 7 are going to describe the details, uh, all of the uh, details related to his uh, planning and his design of the temple. It's, all the specs are given for the temple and for all the articles of furniture that are uh, in the temple. And, of course, all of this is related to the uh, promise of God, which is clarified by God in 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 12, uh, 12 to 13. Let me see if I here I have a slide on that. Concerning this house which you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances, keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will carry out my word with you which I spoke to David, your father. Then I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. That's God's promise to Solomon. So in these chapters, in chapters 5 and 6, we see all the details uh, related to the uh, building of the temple, and we see how this architectural marvel glorified God. It was said of Solomon's temple that it was the greatest wonder of that day, that it, when, when the morning sun rose in the east, and came up over the Mount of Olives, and that morning light hit the gold of the Temple of Solomon, it would almost blind you in the reflection. And this, when you think about how small Jerusalem was, and what this period of history was like, when when people didn't see things like this anywhere, to be a traveler from any part of the world and to come through the hills surrounding Jerusalem and suddenly come upon the site of that temple must have been a stunning, jaw-dropping sight to see that. And all of this was to glorify God, not to glorify Solomon. Chapter 7 and chapter 8, uh, chapter 7 rather gives the details, descriptions of the temple and its furniture, all the details there. In chapter 8, we get into the great dedication of the temple. Chapter 8, 
covers the initial bringing of the ark into the temple in the first part of chapter 8, how Solomon uh, honors God with the correct uh, approach in terms of pomp and circumstance, uh, obeying the law, making sure that all of the protocol was correct. And as the ark is brought into the temple, then the dwelling glory of God fills the house of the Lord in verse 11. And God makes his dwelling on earth in Jerusalem. Beginning in verse 14, Solomon gives his introductory prelude for his prayer of dedication. In that prelude, we see the very heart of the issue once again is the faith rest drill. It is trusting in the promise of God, not only in the Davidic covenant, but also in the Mosaic covenant. For there's a reference there to, in verse 16, to God redeeming the nation, bringing them out of Egypt, and that God says, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. And then he refers to the Davidic covenant. So all of this is is Solomon's application of a promise. It illustrates the faith rest drill. He leads, he builds, he establishes his kingdom on this single promise of God. Now, when we get into the next part of the chapter, beginning in 8.22 and following, we have Solomon's great prayer of dedication, the longest prayer in the Bible. And as we went through that, I showed in detail how all of these requests that Solomon makes are based upon the uh, cursing judgments in Leviticus 26, the cycles of discipline, and again and again and again, Solomon pleads with God to be faithful to his word. What did God say in Leviticus 26? That you will disobey me, you will do this and you will do that, and I will judge you in this way, but if you turn to me, then I will restore you to the land. And again and again, what Solomon says, each time he rehearses this, he comes back and and says to God, that whenever your people uh, disobey you, when they leave you, when you take them out of the land, when you uh, bring in foreign military powers, when you bring famine, when you bring plague, when uh, they sin against you, and, uh, for, for example, verse 46, when they sin against you, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, We have sinned and done wrong, and we have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away, and pray to you toward the land which you gave their fathers, uh, the city which you have chosen, and the temple which I have built for your name, then here in heaven your dwelling, and forgive your people. That's his supplication all through this. When they repent, he calls upon God to listen, to hear, to forgive, and then to restore the people. That ultimate restoration hasn't taken place yet and won't take place until we come to the end of the tribulation period. We're seeing phase one of that restoration, I believe, today for the first time in uh, 2,400 years. Israel, Jews are being returned to the land 
from all parts of the earth. That never happened before. The return at the end of the Babylonian captivity was primarily just from Babylon. Now it's from the whole world. That's only going to happen twice in history, according to Isaiah 11.11. Solomon concludes with a blessing, a benediction upon the people. Blessed be the Lord who has given given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised, he says in verse 56. Again, we see this underlying theme of promise and God's faithfulness, and we can live on the basis of our trust in God's promise. And then that chapter closes with the dedication of the temple. Chapter 9, God again appears to Solomon, gives him a conditional promise for a dynasty, that if you're obedient, if you're faithful, like your father David, then I will establish for you a house. But it's conditional, and Solomon is going to uh, violate that condition. Again, in chapter 9, we have an emphasis on the faithfulness of God to his covenant with David and the uh, operation of the faith rest drill by Solomon, trusting in God. Chapter, the second half of chapter 9 and chapter 10 from 9 uh, 10 uh, and to the end of that chapter, as well as chapter 10, highlight the many ways in which God blessed Solomon. Just the wealth of the kingdom, the extens- extensiveness of their trade is all highlighted. And what we learn from chapters, chapters 3 through 10 is that God has blessed Israel richly and Solomon richly. That shows God's grace but it also shows his faithfulness to the promise to David. But then we have chapter 11. And in chapter 11, as we've seen the last few weeks, God indicts Solomon for covenant unfaithfulness. The description of his violation of the covenant and the law, the, in, and, and the indictment is given in the first uh, eight verses of the chapter that he but we read, but King Solomon loved many foreign women. That stands in contrast to what we saw in 1 Kings 3, 3, that Solomon loved the Lord. But he becomes distracted. He loses focus, loses his priority. He loves many foreign women, and it's not just that he loved them uh, for sexual reasons, but he loved them because... Uh, He's shifted his focus from trusting God to trusting in human alliances. And he enters into all these marriages in order to establish this security zone around Israel, looking and trusting in the arm of man and not in the power of God for security. When he brings these foreign women into Israel, they bring with him their national gods. He begins to, to compromise, setting up, uh, altars, uh, worship sites, worship centers for these fir- false gods. This is a violation of the first commandment. It is a political, it is an act of political treason against God who is the true king of Israel. And so this is defined in verse 6 as Solomon doing evil in the sight of the Lord and does not fully follow the Lord as did his father as did his father David. And so God uh, brings judgment, announces the judgment that the kingdom would be torn from him. And then we see how God raises up these adversaries at the end 
uh, the last 10 to 15 years of Solomon's reign, uh, Hadad, uh, the Edomite, Rezin, uh, the son of uh, Eliada, uh, the king of Zobah, and then, of course, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And it is through Jeroboam that God is going to bring this discipline on the nation. Now, as we close, what's the lesson? The lesson is you can really trust God. God is true to his word. No matter what is going on in the human realm, what the conspiracies are, uh, what the opposition may be, no matter how, how great the opposition may be, no matter how uh, sophisticated they may be, when we are applying God's word, we are in the only place where there is real security. Because only God can, can fulfill his word, only God can develop his plan, and when we're trusting God, no matter what happens, whether it may appear to be bad or good from the viewpoint of the world, whatever happens, we know that God is taking care of us and we can trust him. And when we step out and we try to solve problems on our own without trusting in his word, then the consequences are divine judgment and divine discipline, and then there's a whole realm of unintended consequences that flow as a result of that that we can't imagine. Solomon's defection from God in the last years of his reign arguably can be seen in a big part of the problems in the Middle East today, all because it led the nation into idolatry. The people followed him. They're just as responsible as he is. God divided the kingdom because the people's disobedience, God is faithful to his law, brings about the five cycles of discipline, and this sets up just a whole series of historical events that continue to domino all the way through history. The only solution to life's problems is God's solution, and that begins with trusting him to be faithful to his word. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded of the, of the lessons we've learned as we've gone through these 11 chapters, looking at uh, Solomon's life, understanding the principles, the doctrines, the key uh, applications that we must take from this text. Father, challenge us with your faithfulness. Remind us that you are trustworthy and that we need to claim promises and principles as we face the challenges, the Uh, adversities of our own lives and confident that you can solve any and every problem. You solve the greatest problem of sin on the cross and you can solve any and every problem we face in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.